Jenna Ellis in the morning on American Family Radio. Jenna, first, good morning. Great to be with you, the queen of talk radio in America. The left does not want to honor our freedoms, and we have a responsibility to fight back. I love talking about the things of God because of truth and the biblical worldview. Fill that void with a vision that runs so deep that it dilutes the woke agenda. Well, thank you, Jenna. Right from the beginning, I knew you, so it's an honor to be with you. You're doing really well. Proud of you. Former legal counsel to President Trump. Jenna Ellis. Good morning. And the most, yes, the most important legal case is making its way through the system. And on Thursday, there will be an argument at the Fifth Circuit in Missouri versus Biden, which, of course, is the case attempting to block the federal government from coercing and colluding with social media companies to censor free speech and Uh, That, of course, that position is fully constitutional. And Attorney General Andrew Bailey joins me, and he is the one who is bringing this case and arguing for all of our rights under the First Amendment. So first of all, um, Attorney General Bailey, thank you for uh, what you are doing in this case. And uh, what is the status in terms of the argument that will be at the Fifth Circuit on Thursday? Well, thank you so much for having me on, and you're absolutely right. This lawsuit has uncovered a relationship of coercion and collusion between the Biden White House across a spectrum of federal bureaucratic agencies to target and silence American voices on big tech social media platforms. We all saw it happening, right? We all saw the deep platforming, the shadow banning, uh, but, but what we didn't know that it was going on at the behest of federal officials, and that's what this lawsuit has uncovered. We did preliminary discovery went to court and asked for a preliminary injunction at the end of May. And on the 4th of July, in celebration of our nation's founding, the district court handed down a preliminary injunction, 155-page order. Now, most of those pages were just a recitation, a recounting of all the evidence we'd put on at the preliminary injunction hearing. But the very last few pages were in order to prevent Joe Biden and the federal bureaucracy from targeting core political speech on big tech social media platforms, basically saying they've got to abide by the Constitution. And so this is a huge win. We've got to build a wall of separation between tech and state. The first brick of that wall was laid on July 4th. Of course, the Department of Justice immediately appealed. Uh, the district court said, hey, well, I'm going to let this injunction because the Department of Justice failed to adduce any evidence to show that any lawful behavior was prohibited by the order. So the Department of Justice took it to the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals. We drew a three-judge panel. We like the panel that we have. We'll be arguing in support of the district court's injunction uh, this week. And I'm confident in the ultimate success of the merits. We, we're not going to let Joe Biden destroy free speech in America. Nor, nor should you. And I think that's brilliantly put, that we need to build, build a wall of separation between big tech and state. And yet, uh, Democrat attorneys general have also submitted an amicus brief in the case supporting Biden's position that the federal government can censor so-called misinformation. But how do they actually define that in this case? What is their argument to say, well, the, the speech that we don't prefer, things that go against the narrative, things that we don't want the American people to hear, we can just determine for the American people what they can and can't say or hear or read on social media. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, it, the federal bureaucracy wants the authority to tell you, tell us what we should and shouldn't be talking about. And, and more importantly, the First Amendment, it's important to understand, it applies to more than just speakers. It applies to listeners as well. There may be one speaker and 100, 500 listeners. 
And so the, the First Amendment rights of the, the people to hear information and receive information was also violated. And that's what this is. That's why this is a, an order of magnitude. I mean, these are the worst First Amendment violations in this nation's history. And we've got to keep fighting to build that wall of separation between tech and, and state. And that's why it's so important. But you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, why would we allow the federal government or unelected bureaucrats to decide what is and isn't true and what we what's dangerous to our ears and what isn't? That's what we get to do as citizens of this country. The, the Constitution is designed to protect us from government not empower the federal government to tell us what we should and shouldn't be talking about. I mean, think about this. I personally believe that the Bible is the inerrant word of God. Well, I guarantee you there's a lot of folks that work for Joe Biden that disagree with that position. So what if they start the Bible is misinformation? Then they can deprive us of access to the word of God? I mean, this is scary stuff, and the, the, the soul of our nation is at risk here, and especially as we move into another election cycle. Uh, at court on May 26th, it was telling there was a colloquy between the judge and the Department of Justice, where the court said, well, would it be uh, a violation of the First Amendment for you to censor an American citizen's right to question the integrity of an election? And the Department of Justice said it depends. They can't commit to protecting our right to discuss elections. I mean, if that isn't core political speech, nothing is. So, again, this is scary stuff. And I would point out the founders understood that the, the, the right to free speech was a timeless principle. It didn't matter that in 1700s they were disseminating information by pamphlet. And by the 1930s, it was radio, and the 40s and 50s, it was TV, and the 1990s, it was Internet, and the 2000s, it was big tech social media platform. The, the timeless principle that free speech is intended to protect a free, fair, and open marketplace of ideas intended to invite dissent and discussion, absent government censorship, remains true regardless of the medium of communication. I'm speaking with Attorney General Andrew Bailey out of the great state of Missouri. And so, so how does the the left and Biden and the Democrats, how do they even define misinformation in this context in terms of of their argument for censorship? Because as you've perfectly expressed, we have the right in this country to disagree. We have the right to even believe things that are patently absurd like flat earthers do. But that doesn't mean that the flat earthers group can't have an account on X, formerly known as Twitter, or a group on Facebook. And for people who want to join, they can. Yeah, and you're right. I mean, look, there's no limiting principle once you start down this path of government censorship. There's no, if you say, hey, the government can censor anything that's, that isn't true. Well, the, the problem you've got, and it's really demonstrated in the evidence that we've received more than 20,000 pages of documents, we've deposed numerous witnesses, the majority of that evidence on at a hearing on May 26, and it's recounted in the court's July 4, 155-page order. But but here's, here's the point that, that, that I think demonstrates all of this is that, number one, the speech that we've demonstrated was previously censored uh, at, the, at the federal government's behest or demand, really, is the, is the proper verb. At the federal government's demand, it was all core political speech. So it was a violation of the First Amendment to censor. It was illegal to censor that speech. But secondly, the speech they censored it under the guise of, well, this is misinformation and it's dangerous. It all ended up being true. And third, when asked in court to provide one example of a voice that was censored at the behest of the government that was, wasn't a conservative voice. The only example they had was RFK, a political opponent of Bill Biden. So they're, they're clearly targeting viewpoints here. So, it, again, this is dangerous stuff. The, you know, the, the very soul of our democratic republic is at stake. If we can't say and hear what we deem appropriate, absent government censorship, we will lose the ability to have fair, free, fair, and open debate in this country. And, it, again, it doesn't matter that it's on big tech. It, no one would tolerate this if you were talking on your cell phone and the Department of Justice started muting your cell phone when you started saying things they didn't like. So why would we tolerate it on big tech social media platforms?
Absolutely. And it, it's hilarious that they invoke uh, RFK Jr. as if that somehow evidences their point because he has been one of the most, if not the most, prominent advocate on the Democrat side uh, against the COVID vaccines and for uh, more debate and discussion surrounding COVID-19 and all of those issues, which was at the inception and the heart of this particular case. And so, uh, you know, you know, COVID was one vehicle, and I'm convinced, and I think that that you are too, uh, Attorney General Andrew Bailey, that um, that COVID was just a pretext to see how far the government could go in getting a lot of these precedents on the books. And thankfully, because of cases like this one, I believe they will ultimately fail. But during the the so-called pandemic, they tried to coerce. Uh, fear and and use that as a pretext to simply pave the way for more government overreach and infringement upon our basic freedoms that are protected by the First Amendment and other places in the Constitution. Yeah, that's absolutely right. I mean, COVID was the Trojan horse that got the enemy behind the gates. We have every reason to believe that censorship enterprise has expanded beyond the White House and again across a a spectrum of federal bureaucratic agencies. In fact, in a in one of the, the filings, the court noted that the vast that the nerve center of the vast censorship enterprise was likely in the uh, Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Administration, housed in the Department of Homeland Security. Uh, that the, the federal bureaucracy, that the censorship enterprise grew so quickly and became so expansive. In other words, the government was demanding so much censorship that they had to develop a new bureaucratic apparatus to manage it. And again, we have every reason to believe it has expanded beyond. COVID topics and has moved into election topics, global warming, transgender issues, abortion issues that basically the Biden administration feels that if anything you're saying they don't like, they can silence you on, on big tech social media platforms. And again, this clearly runs uh, directly contradictory and afoul of the founding principles and that the right to free speech is codified in the First Amendment to the Constitution. A hundred percent. And so do you have um, a lot of support from conservative groups and other attorneys general who are supporting you and filing amicus briefs and so forth uh, to uphold this principle in the U.S. Constitution? Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, we, we were Missouri was proud to partner with uh, a like minded attorney general, Jeff Landry, in the state of great state of Louisiana. Uh, you know, he, he saw this for what it was, and we, we joined uh, in lockstep to, to fight this lawsuit together. Uh, we have p- private plaintiffs involved as well, whose uh, individual rights were violated. And then, you know, we, at the point that the blue states' uh, attorneys general filed an amicus brief, which is really dripping with irony, because they're saying, well, look, we've got to fight, uh, we've got to empower the government to be able to fight back against informa- misinformation. And, and what they're doing by making that argument that somehow it's okay to violate the Constitution in this instance is actually spreading misinformation. So it's really kind of hypocritical and ironic. But, uh, you know, w- once that amicus brief was filed, we know that there are other uh, like-minded attorneys general across the country who are Republicans who, who value freedom and understand it. Look, this, this thing can be weaponized. It's been weaponized against conservatives for the past several years. But what if the table's turned? It can be weaponized against the other side as well. So one wonders if these blue state attorneys general would be shrieking as loudly if their voices were the ones that were silenced. Yeah, oh, of course. I mean, if this was, 
you know, Governor DeSantis down in Florida. I mean, look, they're even wanting to say that he's somehow uh, censoring free speech by saying that pornography can't be uh, shown to elementary school kids. And they're shrieking about that. So, of course, they would be. But it's so ridiculous because, as you say, there's no limiting principle and there's nothing to suggest that they even think that this would be turned and used against them because it's almost like they think that they have a right to control whatever their definition of misinformation is. And so um, we've also seen a lot of uh, of things uncovered out of the uh, weaponization of government committee on the federal level and through Congress with the Twitter files, the Facebook files. Is that um, helping or interacting with this case at all? Absolutely. Look, that, uh, Congressman Jordan's yeoman's work in this space has, has clearly corroborated our case and further proven our point. We're so grateful to, to have an advocate like him in the, in the halls of Congress. And look, what we can show you in the emails that we've received in our discovery is that the White House and other federal officials were demanding censorship on big tech social media platforms. There's a specific series of emails from March, April, and May of 2021 where the White House communications office is saying, hey, big tech social media, take down that Tommy Lahren post. Take down that Tucker Carlson video. De-emphasize anyone that's questioning whether the vaccine works. De-platform anyone who's questioning whether uh, you know, mask mandates work. So we can show you the, 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 the direct link between the federal government and big tech social media. But what Representative Jordan has shown you is the, the ripple in the pond effect. Internal communications at Facebook showing that they admitted, they acknowledged, they conceded, they were concerned that the federal government was pushing big tech beyond big tech's own internal censorship priorities. That is the direct evidence, prima facie case, that this is a coercive relationship, that this was done at the demand of the federal government. And then they can also show you that they understood, Big Tech understood, Facebook understood that they were, the federal government was demanding that they violate the First Amendment. So, I mean, again, this is just further corroboration, uh, damning evidence against the Biden administration. That's why we've got to keep fighting to build that wall of separation between tech and state. Big Tech is a unique marketplace. It's different than radio. It's different than TV. It's different than billboards and pamphlets because of Section 230 of the Communication Decency Act has been misinterpreted by the courts to allow a monopoly. So you don't have the same open market competition that would fight back against forms of government censorship. And essentially what I'm saying here is when the government wants to censor on social media, it's easier because they have fewer people to call to get the censorship done. Mm, yeah, such a good point. Well, we will be praying for you and praying for that argument on Thursday at the Fifth Circuit and looking forward uh, to having you back on the program soon. Attorney General Andrew Bailey from the great state of Missouri to give us an update on that. And you will join uh, my podcast this afternoon as well to continue the conversation. So everyone can tune in there at thejennaellisshow.com. Thanks so much again for your advocacy for our founding principles and protecting our right to disagree and debate. This is so fundamental. We'll be right back with more here on Jenna Ellis in the Morning. Welcome back to Jenna Ellis in the Morning on American Family Radio. Well, the pro-life battle continues around the country and particularly in the context of the 2024 presidential race. And recently, uh, Governor Ron DeSantis did an interview with NBC and was pushing back uh, against the leftist abortion position and said that he would not 
allow uh, the the uh, abortion to go as far as the Democrats and the left wanted to do, which is basically up until the moment of birth, which he rightly termed infanticide. And the reporter from NBC pushed back and said there is no indication that Democrats support abortion until birth, which is just patently false. Of course they do. Uh, But joining me now to discuss is Dustin Carmack, who is the policy director for the Ron DeSantis for President campaign. So, uh, Dustin, this was a really interesting exchange because, of course, uh, Governor DeSantis is advocating for the conservative pro-life and I believe constitutional position on abortion. And yet, Um, This reporter is not being honest with the Democrats position, which I find really fascinating because aren't they the party of pro-choice literally until the moment of birth? No, absolutely. And I mean, we saw this from Chuck Schumer, um, you know, in the Senate as early as, as last year. I mean, we've seen you know, multiple states, including, you know, Maine and Colorado and California and others, you know, push this line. So to watch her kind of interject on the, you know, on the governor uh, in such a way, it kind of reminded me of like uh, Candy Crowley uh, years ago in the debate where it was kind of this tried to this attempt of a live fact check, which, you know, didn't you know, live up to snuff. And then actually, if anything, it just shows you the agenda uh, of the media in this case, essentially tried to de- you know, demagogue uh, the points that the governor was trying to make and then the, the life he's trying to protect. And I think this is so fascinating because their position has been very clear, especially, as you mentioned, you know, Chuck Schumer um, going out and threatening uh, sitting Supreme Court justices in the context of uh, what would be the future overturning of Roe versus Wade. You have uh, Kamala Harris and Joe Biden that are, have openly advocated for pro-choice positions. You have the left that's screaming, celebrate abortions. I mean, I mean, we've gone so far from this whole safe, legal and rare uh, kind of mantra that was the Democrat Party back, you know, maybe 40 years ago. And so why why are they not being open with their opinion uh, about abortion in the context of this discussion with the governor when in their own framing, um, abortion and pro-life issues are, are a losing issue for Republicans, which I disagree with. But I mean, that's been their open position. Yeah, I think at the end of the day, they, as much as I agree with you that they, that, that is their worldview, they know that amongst the, the most, you know, the American public, that is not a, a popular position, nor is it a position that they are comfortable talking about other than, you know, they're, they're just kind of the company line. And this is everybody from, you know, Ralph Norman Northam, the, uh, the old governor of Virginia, when he, when he talked about this issue to all their other candidates, you know, Bernie Sanders and others. They essentially, they know from their progressive left and the organizations that push them on this, they essentially have to say, you know, all the way up, you know, through birth. Uh, and that, you know, but when it comes into the details of that, and, and they do not want to live in the debate of that space. I mean, it's just a fact that has been the case for a long time. And they want to essentially narrow the conversation and try to essentially, uh, you know, split Republicans, split conservatives, split those that are pro-life. Uh, that want to drive a culture of life, which is something that the governor has been advocating for ever since you know I, you know I've known him and when he's in Congress and, and now as a presidential candidate, he will continue to press you know a culture of life in this country. Which, of course, uh, every conservative and every Christian should agree with. And and um, it's interesting that that the pro life debate is a an issue that has uh, kind of 
created some factions within the Republican Party. So where is Governor DeSantis on the issue of life, maybe by comparison uh, to some other candidates who are saying, well, we shouldn't do anything on the federal level or, you know, maybe kind of rolling back from more ardent and strident pro-life positions? Right. I mean, you know, the governor has said, you know, he will be a pro-life president. And I mean, if anything, and two, you know, uh, not only does he talk the talk, he walks the walk when it comes to, you know, what he did, uh, he did here in Florida. Now, what he's saying as well is, is when we look at what Democrats have wanted to do, or some of these uh, states have, have tried to do, is now in, in, in a post-Dobbs environment, we have real dogfights on our hands in terms of of advancing pro-life causes uh, all across the board. And so you're seeing that play out with, you know, Senator Tupperville, uh, literally in the U.S. Senate, uh, trying to get, you know, essentially enforce the law with the Hyde Amendment to block taxpayer funds uh, for abor- against abortions. Uh, at the same time, you know, you're seeing states where, you know, you're pressing, uh, you know, further pro-life, uh, you know, bills like such as in Florida and other places, but you're going to see the left you know, rally around trying to overturn those with either constitutional amendments, depending on the states, you know, um, uh, broader actions. And so, you know, when it comes to this will be a fight and you'll, you'll need a president who is speaking articulately on this subject, but also, you know, showing sympathy and cause and essentially showing people too this culture of life is important because, you know, we want people to be successful in this country and we want families to be successful. And at the same time, you know, I think the governor has a great message. He's got a great track record. And I think he's looking forward to delivering that for Americans. I think it's absolutely fantastic that he is so outspoken on uh, the pro-life issue as one of the most fundamental and basic issues in this country that we finally have an opportunity in uh, the aftermath of the Dobbs opinion to have this conversation on the merits. And uh, the left can't just shut us down by saying, well, too bad this is, you know, super precedent or extreme super duper precedent, whatever uh, the left was saying when Roe versus Wade was still uh, the opinion in this nation. And so we get to have all of those discussions and all of those dogfights, as, as you put it, Dustin, um, in and in, in not only the state and local level, but also on the federal level. And you have all of these opportunities that conservatives can't just back down and can't uh, not stand for the true pro-life position, which is to push, I mean, ultimately to make abortion unthinkable in this country. I mean, I don't even think that some of these leftists that are advocating for, for extreme pro-life or pro-choice positions rather even know what they're arguing for. I mean, they haven't ever genuinely seen an abortion. They don't understand what they're arguing for. And finally, having this conversation on the merits is incredibly important. So I just find it fascinating that um, that some of these reporters, like this NBC reporter, isn't even being willing to openly state what the left's position is and is pushing back up just so demonstrably falsely. Um, but I want to turn in in the uh, few minutes that I have uh, left with you, and I'm speaking with Dustin Carmack, who is on Team uh, Ron DeSantis. You're also an alumni of the Heritage um, Foundation, who, uh, of course, are our good friends there as well. So I, I saw that in your profile, wanted to give them a shout out. Um, but I wanted to also ask you about Governor DeSantis's um, opinion piece that was uh, published yesterday in USA Today, and the title is America's economy is decimated 
As president, I have a plan to rebuild it. He says, well, we will declare our economic independence from the failed elites who orchestrated American decline and from never-ending federal spending that inflated prices and left the nation on the brink of insolvency. So I think that the economy is a huge, huge issue, especially going into 2024. So what is the governor's plan for America's economy? Yeah, I mean, you put it perfectly in the sense that he wants, uh, you know, the discussion to revolve around, um, you know, the economy is not the overall driver. It is, you know, the American family, you know, it's American families and small businesses and your everyday workers, um, you know, that overlays on top of an economy, not the other way around. And we've kind of treated, you know, our economy through either just plainly economic indicators or, you know, in the case of Bidenomics, where, you know, you have the Biden administration complaining that people aren't seeing, you know, the the numbers and inflation going somewhat down, but they're still at record highs and people feel the crush of this inflation. And so it affects every American differently. And so we want, you know, an America as part of this plan where we are spending less, we're driving down inflation, we're opening up, you know, the energy spigot, you know, from everything, essentially all of the above, you know, unleashing kind of this American energy and manufacturing prowess that we essentially have kneecapped uh, for my entire lifetime through either poor trade policies on one end, uh, you know, excessive regulation on the other, and how do we get people back to work in this country, driving wages where families, you know, will have the options if, if a parent would like to stay at home for like a family of four, that you can make a wage, that you can do that. And so, when it, and you know, it also stems to what needs to be done on education and where we've seen failed higher education institutions all the way to, you know, K through 12 schools and where you see the contrast with the left between, you know, a state like Florida who passes and, and is implementing you know, essentially school choice across the board and other states that are having these, you know, constant failures. And so how do you drive solutions? You know, it's, you know, when you say even just like an economic framework, it is more encompassing than that because there's no silver bullets to fix this economy. The governor was ready to get into action to stop America's decline and, this, and essentially find a, a pathways towards success. And one of the things, Dustin, that I see um, the governor interweaving together very well is uh, is not only this this economic decline, but his grasp of why woke, defined of course as cultural Marxism, is is intentionally trying to subvert the American dream, the principles of American liberty and freedom that include economic freedom, that include parental rights. You know, you mentioned education that include all of these things. I mean, these aren't just isolated topics. And while there are some in Washington that want to just focus on the economy separately, focus on parental rights separately, pro-life issues separately, all of these things, uh, what I see the governor doing is having kind of a comprehensive view and a and a truthful worldview about all of these policy issues and how everything is is integrated when you're seeing what the left is trying to do to destroy this country. So he also has um, and and uh, put out the Declaration of Economic Independence. And so if you could speak to that a little bit as well, how all of this factors into um, his plan for rebuilding the American dream and what all of us as Americans are are used to in terms of, of what we want our system of government to still be for the future. 
Yeah, it has to weave. Uh, you know, when he talks about, you know, when he's talking about ESG or DEI, some of these different things and the, what the left has, has done to a lot of these kind of corporate institutions, uh, you know, w- one of the big drivers is, you know, a lot of people say, well, you know, you're just focusing on woke. Well, woke, like, it has an effect on your bottom line. I mean, when you're talking about, um, you know, government mandates dictating, like, an ideological view of how you – uh, handle the internal combustible engine of a car and what you should drive. That has an effect on your bottom line, and that has an effect on the tax policy. So when you're seeing these kind of ideological agendas merge into this corporate world, and so uh, I think when the governor calls that out, you know, he is a free market you know, conservative at the end of the day, but what he has seen essentially is, is the game has been rigged uh, and that you see it in two different ways. You see it, you know, uh, either by push by the left to implement, you know, facets of the new Green Deal. You see it uh, as a way to go after our kids. And, you know, if there's one thing the governor, who is a, a proud father with his wife of, you know, a six, five and three year old, is like he has zero tolerance for, you know, corporations or institutions essentially you try to sexualize children. And so, when it comes to you know, putting his foot down, he will stand the stand his ground. And so uh, these are all things that do have effects on the economy, has effects on the American family. And so when he's pushing them back on these things and holding the line, it is important to recognize when he's getting all these, you know, uh, targeting from the left. It's usually me, like he says, you know, when you're, you're taking flack, you know, you're over the target. And he's going to keep being over the target on all this. He's going to keep pushing this message, and he's looking forward to, you know, keep adding more meat on the bone of all these different policy ideas as well, which is really exciting. Yeah, and and this has been targeted um, not just from the left, but I think from the right, some of these other candidates that are hitting him from the left, which I find really fascinating. So um, in terms of the GOP primary, um, Dustin, how do you see these issues uh, being the number one important things that conservatives are genuinely considering when uh, they're considering who to nominate as the candidate from the GOP. I mean, when we're talking about pro-life, when we're talking about the economy, when we're talking about parental rights, I mean, these things are and should be at the core and the center of our values. Is that what you're also seeing on the campaign trail? Absolutely. I mean, he's he's been in Iowa for for the last few days. He'll be back in Iowa this weekend at the county fair, you know, at the state fair. Um, but these are, you know, from everything, you know, that he's driving on, you know, this economic broader approach. But also, like you said, you know, what, what what's impacting families and what are people concerned about? And you know, I think COVID and his leadership during that time period, but also the aftermath of, of fighting for kids, fighting for parents' rights, fighting for you know, allowing parents to understand what their 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 children are being taught and then you know also questioning broader institutions of like hey what are you teaching you know people the future workers of our country and how do we make people more productive how do we raise wages in this country i mean these are all things that you know it's complicated in the sense that you have to weave all this stuff together uh, for us to drive the message going forward to drive the solutions that need to go forward and i think he is the perfect person to do that because he you know sees the chessboard 10 you know 10 pieces or 10 moves down the road and and you have to be effective starting day one as president and and I could think of nobody better uh, that can start executing these types of policies and fights on day one on January 20th 2025 well Dustin Carmack thanks so much uh, for your time and looking forward to all of these issues being discussed and debated at uh, the upcoming first GOP presidential debate. We'll look forward to that and we'll be right back with more here on Jenna Ellis in the morning.
Welcome back to Jenna Ellis in the Morning on American Family Radio. In more good news for the uh, legal community and uh, lawsuits, yesterday the Rocky Mountain Gun Owners, or RMGO, were granted a preliminary injunction against Colorado Senate Bill 23169. According to their press release, that uh, the law that restricts the constitutionally protected right to purchase, own, and possess a firearm to legal adults between the ages of 18 and 20. So the members of the Rocky Mountain gun owners joined as plaintiffs and filed the lawsuit in federal court before the ink was even dry on the governor's desk, challenging the constitutionality of the newly enacted law, arguing that their right to keep and bear arms are being directly infringed upon by overreaching politicians in Denver. So Taylor D. Rhodes is the executive director for the Rocky Mountain Gun Owners Association in Colorado and joins me now. So Taylor, big win. Congratulations. And uh, where do we go from here? Yeah, thank you. We uh, obviously when we get wins like this, it is a it is a breath of fresh air living in, in Colorado where seemingly the legislature just ran through pretty much whatever they wanted to. And frankly, we told them this at the Capitol uh, when they were introducing this this bill, and we told them this was blatantly unconstitutional. We knew a federal judge would strike it down. So, you know, this is just the first part. But, you know, as an attorney yourself, you can probably speak more to this. But from what I understand from our attorneys is, you know, these preliminary injunctions like this one, especially a 44-page uh, decision, you know, those don't normally come unless you are in a very uh, good position to win these cases. So we're obviously extremely excited about the ruling we got yesterday uh, and looking forward to, to winning uh, this lawsuit outright. Yeah, and, and I, I think this is a really excellent um, in terms of getting that preliminary injunction, which is um, an even stronger enforcement mechanism than um, a temporary restraining order, for example. I mean, this is something that uh, the judge in this instance is saying that you know, you're very likely to succeed on the merits of this uh, Senate bill and your argument uh, that this is an unconstitutional infringement, particularly in light of uh, all of the Supreme Court precedent and the um, the New York case versus Bruin that uh, was the most recent Supreme Court uh, discussion and opinion on the Second Amendment. And, and I think that this is a, a really significant win, uh, particularly, as you mentioned, Taylor, for Colorado specifically, because this has been for the last decade at least, Colorado has been kind of a testing ground for the liberal left to try to push through so many of these so, so extremely far progressive leftist um, agenda types of bills that getting a win on something that is so fundamental, like the right to keep and bear arms, that's literally right there in the Constitution. um, This is pushing back and saying, no, even in a very blue state, unfortunately, now like Colorado, um, this is just way too far. So, um, so, so this is a, a really, really good win. And and in terms of um, where you're going next, then what is this this signal in terms of uh, where the RMGO is standing to continue to protect uh, Second Amendment rights for the state? Right. So this is just the very beginning of of what we're doing. We're actually already involved uh, in 
four different lawsuits um, from age restrictions, just like we got the win yesterday, to um, minimum age requirements, to uh, blocking the state's 10-year-old magazine ban, and even suing uh, little localities that thought they could pass so-called assault weapons bans. So we're going on the offensive on our legal front because, frankly, that's how we believe we can win. So at this point, we are looking at suing over um, you know, the entire gun control package, uh, which there's three bills that we have not sued over at this point. Um, frankly, I have to raise the money to do so. Um, so as soon as I do have the money to sue, uh, I think the next one we will file uh, would be the ghost would be against the so-called ghost gun ban, uh, which has there's a couple of articles out there, and it they really point out how convoluted. Uh, this law is because technically the state law is in violation of the federal law. And when you call the ATF, uh, they'll tell you to do one thing. And when you call uh, the state regulators, they'll do, they'll tell you to do a completely different thing. So not only do we believe it's unconstitutional, it's just not a good law. Um, so, so we're doing everything in our power uh, to take back the freedoms uh, that were stolen from us. And and this is so important, uh, like I said, particularly in states like Colorado that are trying to uh, push the envelope against uh, things like the Second Amendment, um, you know, other things in Colorado that are that are just absolutely absurd leftists. And so I think it's even more important to fight uh, the battle, particularly on the the, uh, gun ownership rights in a state like Colorado than um, than red states that are doing those types of protections uh, legislatively already. I mean, this is something that hopefully uh, the Democrat-controlled legislature is going to see and say, okay, you know, we can't uh, we can't go that far. And so, um, so in terms of you know continuing to fight every single unconstitutional anti-gun law. Um, what is now, in, in your view, kind of the state of play of where the legislature uh, may try to then get around this particular opinion and say, okay, well, maybe um, you know, SB 23-169 went too far, but we're going to come back with something else? Right, and that's exactly what we're already hearing. So I guess uh, several reporters were talking to both sides, and that was brought up to me yesterday and says, well, this is great. What if this law is struck down and they just come right back and pass something almost identical? Uh, does that create a continuous loop of you know them passing laws and you suing them? Uh, and ultimately, I guess the answer is yes, um, if they're going to be that hard-headed. Um, uh, and not listen uh, to the to the to the court systems and, and re- review what they what they have uh, what they've ruled. Uh, so RMG will be here to defend uh, those constitutionally protected rights. And unfortunately, it does seem like uh, Colorado Democrats would uh, come back and and say, "Well, okay, this wasn't unconstitutional, but uh, maybe something else is." I mean, we're already seeing reports. Uh, from national Democrats that, you know, they're they're starting to finally realize that these so-called assault weapons bans are, are going to be deemed as unconstitutional. Uh, so now they're saying, well, why don't we just institute a thousand percent tax on on so-called assault weapons? I mean, they're doing everything in their power to disarm us.
Yeah, and and it's it's really frightening, actually. I mean, including uh, Governor Gavin Newsom out of California that proposed the Twenty Eighth Amendment to the United States Constitution, uh, basically to end um, America's gun rights. I mean, he calls it ending America's gun violence crisis. Um, but as you and I love your pinned tweet. Um, where where you state saying guns kill people is like saying pencils misspell words. Um, it's brilliant, <laughs> and I think that that's putting it so excellently. Um, but we're seeing from from just a broad kind of thirty thousand foot perspective, um, Taylor Rhodes. We're seeing the the left pushing on all fronts to try to disarm the. American public and to say no matter what the U.S. Constitution says, no matter uh, what our system says about freedom and liberty, we want to disarm you. And so um, just from from a basic um, civics perspective, how can uh, listeners who care about their gun rights and who want to uh, fight back, whether it's in Colorado, whether it's um, you know on a national level, like what Newsom is proposing, how should they understand why uh, gun rights are so important to the foundation of this country. Right. So, so first off, you know, this case, you know, you may be listening to this and being like, well, I don't live in Colorado. What does this have to do with me? Uh, there's been, I don't know, four or five different rulings like this um, all over the country uh, where states have, even the state of Florida uh, has age restrictions on, on purchasing uh, uh, long guns. And um, so ultimately, one of these cases is very likely to end up in the Supreme Court um, where where, the, where they may rule. Uh, we, we actually find that to be the path that this issue particularly is going down. Um, so, you know, if you're if you're a gun owner uh, and you care about the rights of not only yourself, but our next generation, I would strongly encourage you to get involved uh, with either Rocky Mountain Gun Owners, if you live here in the state of Colorado, or the National Association for Gun Rights, uh, if you're if you're outside of, of Colorado, and, and heck, they may have a, a state group uh, in your state where uh, they're doing similar work um, uh, to Rocky Mountain Gun Owners, and that are doing the real work to protect uh, and preserve and and advance uh, your Second Amendment freedoms. Yeah, it, it is so incredibly important. And listeners of this show uh, know that regularly I will encourage uh, everyone, regardless of what state you live in, know your docket on the legislative agenda. Uh, know your legislators. Know what uh, you are fighting in your state. Because uh, even in red states, sometimes there's some kind of wild proposal or there's something uh, that maybe a legislator thinks is a good idea that ultimately runs afoul of your your rights and uh, protections under uh, not only our U.S. Constitution, but maybe your state constitution. And uh, you have a voice and you need to fight back. And um, and so that's why a lot of these organizations like Rocky Mountain Gun Owners are so important um, to making sure that we do push back on these things. We fight the fights that are worth fighting and uh, protecting our liberties and freedoms always is. And, uh, and so how can uh, people, if they live in Colorado, uh, be part of Rocky Mountain Gun Owners and um, or if they're just simply interested in helping you fight these fights, uh, Taylor Rhodes, he's executive director for the Rocky Mountain Gun Owners. Uh, how can they get involved and support you? Right. And, and, and just to go back to your point, you know, talking about in red states, you know, right now in the state of Tennessee, we are fighting uh, the National Association for Gun Rights is fighting back on Governor Bill Lee. 
a governor that signed, once signed constitutional carry is now advocating for red flag laws. So it's, it's really a shame. But if you want to get involved in the fight, if you, if you want to help out our fight here in Colorado, I would strongly encourage you to go over to, rock, to rmgo.org. As soon as you go to that page, you'll see a legal fund. Right now, that is where we need the money. That's all earmarked for our legal fights. And, you know, I am up to my ears in about $5 million worth of, of legal fees uh, that I need to pay. Uh, so if, if any of your listeners would like to jump in and help on those on those legal fees, I would greatly appreciate it. Um, and, and I know uh, the majority of my members here in Colorado would, would, would appreciate that as well. Yeah, and, and it's it's incredible. I mean, a lot of people who sometimes will ask me, you know, why isn't anybody fighting on this issue? Or why isn't this legislation that's so patently unconstitutional not being challenged? Or why aren't we fighting over here? And the answer usually comes down to funding. And and it's, it's so frustrating, I think, that it seems like the left always has these unlimited, you know, Soros-funded deep pockets uh, to advance any of the causes that they prefer. And yet when it comes uh, down to fighting some of these really critical battles, um, you know, I always ask the question, where is our conservative George Soros? You know, where where are the people uh, that that are willing to fight these fights? And we need um, more funding. We definitely need more lawyers as well. And we need more um, advocacy groups that are willing to step in and be uh, the plaintiffs in some of these cases. And so, um, you know, Taylor Rhodes, I really appreciate everything uh, that you're doing, that the Rocky Mountain gun owners um, are doing to, to fight for the second Amendment. And so um, just in the last you know, few minutes that I have here as well, um, how would you encourage then uh, you know, people who are listening to this, if they care about um, the Second Amendment in particular, um, to become more well-versed on you know, some of the opposition to this, like saying, because uh, you, know, you hear from the left all the time, well, you know, why, do you, why do you need to have this type of gun? Or this is just because it's, it's meant for hunting or you know, some of these things. And you know, my response to it is always like, well, the government can't tell you you can't just because that's what the government prefers. They need to have a legitimate constitutional basis for it. But how would you encourage people to also just become uh, more well-versed in why the Second Amendment matters to our fundamental liberties? Well, I always encourage um, activists that ask about this to read the, the Federalist Papers. I think that's a really good way to start. As soon as you get done with that, um, jump into an advocacy group, whether that be uh, with Rocky Mountain Gun Owners or the National Association for Gun Rights or Gun Owners of America. Uh, and many of these groups uh, put out educational materials. Uh, we actually have a foundation that uh, pretty much solely exists to, to file lawsuits and put out educational material. Um, and, and, and groups like that are, are really what um, help drive the conversation uh, and, and bringing up these talking points, you know, debunking the left's myths of, of, of gun control. Uh, calling out their skewed statistics. You know, luckily on Twitter uh, seems to be a little bit of a freer place. Um, a lot of the times you'll you'll see the community notes that when the left has, has blatantly lied on something on guns, uh, you'll see that little community note there at the bottom that says, yeah, well, I love those. True. <laughs> And, uh, and hopefully we're getting even more with uh, the Missouri versus Biden lawsuit. Uh, but Taylor Rhodes, I really appreciate it. He's the executive director 
for the Rocky Mountain Gun Owners of Colorado. And you can always reach me, Jenna, at AFR.net. Continue to advocate for all of your freedoms. We are out of time for today, but I will see you tomorrow morning right here on American Family Radio Network.